I, I, was, I missed one last very important announcement that I should have done, but is really important, and that is this Saturday at about 9 a.m., we are going to start decking the halls and getting ready for Christmas because after Thanksgiving, it's, it's fair game, right? We're trying not to do it before Thanksgiving, but after Thanksgiving, we want to make sure that for beginning Advent, which is next Sunday, that we are prepared for Christmas. And we have Alini Toller who's helping us with that. Very, very grateful for her. Anne used to do it for like forever and she's passed it off to the next generation. But there are some of you who have the ability to help decorate. We invite you to come and participate. And for those of you who don't, but simply have the ability to schlep heavy things, have I got an opportunity for you directly after service today? We're actually going to bring all the heavy stuff down so that they are ready. Because Alini is built for decor, but she is not built for schlepping. Okay? There are different spiritual gifts. And so some of us stronger guys, we get to help her and, and, and some of the gals prepare that. And I was actually, it's interesting, I was reading, and this is not part of the message, but I was reading a, a theological study in the Babylon Bee this week about... Um, they, theologians now believe that the reason that Saul threw the spear at David originally is because he started playing Christmas songs before Pentecost. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's true because it was also before Jesus came, which is kind of difficult, but, but it, it may have been. I, I know that I have gotten irritated when I've turned on Coast 101 and it's like, what are you doing? It's too early. Anyway. If you are just joining us, I'm, I'm probably not theologically true. Hopefully that will be the only non-theologically true thing I will say the rest of the day. Let's find out, shall we? So with, with that uh, very encouraging note, let's dive in. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Um, and, and if you're just joining us, let me remind you of where we have been. Last week, we had the opportunity to hear the story of the first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen. And Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council, with a couple of trumped-up charges that they brought against him. Two of them. One was that he was speaking out against the temple, that he was basically saying Jesus was going to destroy the temple. The second charge that was brought against him is that he was disrespectful to Moses, particularly the law, and that he was trying to change the tradition that had been handed to the, the Israelites or the Jews by Moses. And Stephen's response, his defense, is not defensive at all. It's actually more offensive. He flips those accusations around and says, guys, you're accusing me of these things, but it's you who are mistaken. It's you who have totally misled the people. You accuse me of saying that the temple will be destroyed, but may I remind you that God is not limited to the temple, as if you could somehow build a house that contains the God of the universe, right? He's all over the place. And then secondly, you accuse me of disrespecting Moses. May I humbly remind you from the history, from the story of Israel, that we have a long, illustrious career of disrespecting Moses. It started with... Israelites totally disregarding him when he was trying to lead them, totally grumbling against him as he tried to lead them towards the promised land, and totally ignoring him when he pointed towards the Messiah and said, one will come out after me who will lead you as well. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, in verse 51, Stephen ends with these very innocuous, very non-charged words. 
you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, which is an awkward way of saying you are really not set apart. You're not really, you don't have the heart of God. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah. And as if that wasn't bad enough, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You murdered the Messiah. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Them's fighting words. So it's understandable that the Sanhedrin, the most powerful ruling council in all of Judaism, would be a little bit perturbed because they are the ones sitting in judgment upon him and yet he seems to have flipped the script and now he is accusing them of missing the point. And so they become, begin to get agitated, but Stephen doesn't back down. You would think that if he is staring down his own mortality in this moment, these are the men who have the right to say whether he lives or dies. You would think that he might kind of, he's seen them getting agitated, he might have backed up a little bit and tried to placate them, but he doesn't at all. And if anything, he leans in and doubles down because in that moment, the Holy Spirit gives him a glimpse of the throne room of heaven. And he sees Jesus standing next to God. And so he not only sees that, but he articulates that, he declares it. In verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And he says, look, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. What he has just done is declared Jesus to be divine. And in fact, if we go back three to six months before, it was Jesus who was standing in this very same spot standing in front of this very same ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And at that time, can we, throw, can we throw the kind of conversation that happened? The high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus replied, I am. And you will see the son of man. Now, the son of man was from the, the book of Daniel. The prophet Daniel had articulated that you, we, we would see one like the son of man coming on the clouds to redeem humanity. And so that was the title Jesus used for him because the title Messiah carried with it a lot of unrealistic expectations that the Jewish people had. They had kind of packed it full of all of their militaristic expectations. So Jesus kind of disregarded the title Messiah and instead grabbed hold of Daniel's title, one like the Son of Man, and used that to refer to himself in the third person interestingly. So I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. Well, that didn't go over so well. Can we go to the next part? The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And all of the Sanhedrin condemned him as worthy of death. Now, Jesus made a lot of people upset throughout his lifetime. But it was this statement before this very group of people that he would sit at the right hand of the throne of God that ultimately sealed his death. And they began working from that moment forward to make sure he got crucified. And now, three to six months later, you have Stephen standing before the very same group of people. And he basically says, Jesus was right and you were wrong. Because I see him at the right hand of the throne of the Father. He is divine. He's God. 
Now, the Sanhedrin has one of two choices. They can either acknowledge that they were wrong and Jesus was right and they had made a mistake and they murdered the Messiah, or they can do to Stephen the very same thing that they had done to Jesus, namely kill him. And that's what they choose to do. They cover their ears as if his words are, are, are a virus that can somehow infect them. They scream at the top of their lungs to try to drown out any more of his words. They drag him out of the city, pick up stones, and begin to hurl them at him as powerfully as they can, looking to kill him. And in this moment, Stephen knows that his life is virtually over. But he doesn't beg for mercy. He doesn't hurl insults at these men who are killing him because he has simply told them the truth and their own hard-heartedness can't see the truth. Instead, he says two things. Go down to verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said all of this, he fell asleep, which is simply a euphemism for he died. Now, those, those two things that he says there, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and Lord Jesus, please don't hold it against them, those are incredibly reminiscent of two things that Jesus said from the cross. As he had a group of people hurling insults at him and celebrating the fact that he was dying, but instead of crying out to himself, Jesus, me, you know, have mercy, whatever, he actually calls to the Father. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Father, don't hold this against them because they don't know what they're doing. And so Stephen has not only made the same declaration that Jesus is going to be at the right hand of the throne of God, or in fact at this point is, but he is now, even in his death, following in the footsteps of his Lord and Savior, his whole posture of, God, I entrust my spirit into your hands, and Jesus, don't hold this against them. He is reflecting the heart of God. It's beautiful in the ways that it just continues to echo. And then he dies, and there's a guy named Saul who is standing there approving of what they're doing. Let's go ahead and keep reading now in chapter 8, verse 1, to see the aftermath of what happens. Saul approved of their killing of Jesus. Saul was a, a trained Pharisee. He was from probably that church uh, of the freedmen. He was definitely raised outside of Jerusalem. But then he had moved to Jerusalem to train under the rabbi Gamaliel. And he was himself a rabbi who was approving of Saul's death, we're going to, or of Stephen's death. And we're going to hear a whole bunch more about him in, in the coming months as we continue through the book of Acts. But then we read in verse 1, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Let's unpack this a little bit. We're once again reminded of this guy named Saul, who in his mind is honoring the God of Israel by trying to destroy this, this really dangerous, in his opinion, movement that Stephen represents that they're beginning to call the way. 
And he almost like looks at Stephen's gospel message as a stain, a a blemish on the, the beautiful, pristine fabric of the Jewish people that he wants to scrub out before it can set in, or a, um, a, a spark in the temple that, if not stamped out immediately, is going to burn the whole place down. And so for him, his act of approving of Stephen's death and then beginning to try to dismantle the church is an act of worship. He is going to do anything and everything he can to stop this, in his opinion, heretical strain of theology from making its way into and impacting the church in Jerusalem or the, you know, the Jewish community there in Jerusalem and beyond. And so he begins to arrest men and women. And so everybody but the apostles leaves Jerusalem. They have to get out of there because they're terrified that if they stay, they too will be arrested and many of them probably killed for their faith. And so they leave Jerusalem. And on the surface, this appears to be a really dark day for the people of God and for the movement that Jesus inaugurated by the giving of the Holy Spirit. I would imagine that if you and I we're in Jerusalem on that day and it began to witness what was taking place, we might be confused. We might be thinking to ourselves, God, are you even here? I know that you bring beauty from ashes and strength from tears, but I don't have a clue how you're going to possibly redeem this and use this to advance your kingdom purposes. And yet, when we look at what transpires from Stephen's death and the persecution, when we look at that from kind of stepping back and looking at it from the scope of history, what we begin to see is that this is one of the most pivotal moments in the history of the church. And in fact, Stephen's death and the subsequent persecution is actually the thing that helps the early church actually do what Jesus had commissioned them originally to do. Go back to Acts chapter 1 for just a moment. Because Jesus had basically told his disciples to do two things. Number one, wait in Jerusalem. Wait for the giving of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he will enable you to do far more than you can do on your own. So wait. But once the Holy Spirit came... Then came the second commissioning. This is what they were here for. Look at verse 8 for just a moment. You will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses, beginning here in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, the surrounding area, and into Samaria, those places that you wouldn't normally go, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, wait here until I equip you with power on high, with the Holy Spirit, and then once you have the Holy Spirit, don't wait any longer than go. First go outside into Jerusalem and share the good news, then go into the, the greater surrounding areas, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. That is what I'm calling you to do. And initially, that's what happens. Initially, they do wait. They hide in the upper room. And then the Holy Spirit comes and falls upon them powerfully and that upper room can no longer contain them and they go outside and they begin to share the glory of God and and celebrate and worship Him in languages they never even learned but the people who are there for Pentecost can understand in their own tongues. And thousands of people begin to come to Christ. But then all of a sudden it's like this movement pauses and they stay in Jerusalem rather than going into Samaria 
and Judea and to the ends of the earth. They stall out. I was thinking about it this week, that there's this natural propensity for, for people, you and I and everybody that I've met, there's this natural propensity for us to want to stay in places that are familiar and safe and congregate our, around people who think like us and act like us and, uh, um, and, and encourage us. I was talking with, uh, there's a, a family the Barones, who came from Houston a couple years ago and were part of our church for about a year. And then last year, around this time, God called them to move back to Houston to go basically plant a church with their family and unbelieving friends. Go be witnesses there. And they went. They obeyed God. Well, a couple of weeks ago, right before Halloween, they came back for vacation. They were here for about three weeks. They just left this week. And immediately, they found themselves going, oh, it's so good to be here where we're surrounded with people who know us, people who encourage us, people who kind of even use the same language we use, who understand what we believe about God. Like, this is home. This is family. We really want to stay. And in fact, they began to pray, like, maybe we can actually move back. Maybe God will let us. And that's our human tendency, isn't it? To want to congregate with people who think and act just like us. Ultimately, they, they really felt like, no, we need to go back. And in fact, even Ethan, their, their second born, as he was watching Jay get baptized a couple of weeks ago, goes, I want to get baptized, but I don't want to get baptized here. I want to get baptized with our family so that, Dad, you can share the gospel message of why I'm getting baptized with our family in our cold pool on January 1st. Like, God bless you, dude. Greg, enjoy getting in that pool of water, right? But I love that. But here, here's where I'm getting at. Our human tendency is to want to be with people that are just like us. It is not our human tendency to run into uncomfortable situations and places that put us in danger. And that's why it took the Holy Spirit falling upon the early disciples to propel them out of the, 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 the cocoon that was the upper room and out into the streets of Jerusalem. And I would suggest it took, the persecu- it took the death of Stephen and the outbreak of persecution to propel the early church beyond the safety of the walls of Jerusalem. And the picture I have that's just been running through my mind this week as I've been kind of dwelling on this story is that of a dandelion, right? You think about a dandelion, it is, it is a clump of seeds stuck together. And as long as those seeds stick together, they cannot possibly do what they were created to do, namely to make more flowers. But it was almost as if in this moment, the death of Stephen and the outbreak of persecution, God reached down and plucked the dandelion that was the early church and blew these believers, these men and women who had tasted and seen all that God had done and blew them beyond the boundaries of their comfort zone, out into Judea, and into those places you wouldn't choose to go, into the Samaritan areas, and ultimately to the ends of the earth as the Holy Spirit led them. Which leads me to a very uncomfortable question. Is persecution necessary for the church to do what God has called us to do? 
Do we actually have to endure persecution in order to do the work that God has commissioned us to do, namely to be his ambassadors of hope and reconciliation and to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything we have taught? Does it require persecution? Now, there are certainly people throughout history who would, at least on the surface, seem to answer that question in the positive way. There's a guy named Tertullian, for instance, from the second century. He was a a theologian and and an author that was writing from a Christian standpoint in Carthage, which is in northern Africa in the second century. And Tertullian watched as the Roman Empire ran roughshod over the early church. This is only in the second century, so he's, he's already watching men and women that he loves that he has done life with, being crucified, set on fire, uses tiki torches to literally light the, the, the ways that the Romans would, you know, as they're going into parties, they would be killing Christians and setting them on fire to declare the might of Rome. He was watching as Christ followers were gathered up and thrown to the lions in the, the Colosseums for sport. And the only thing they were guilty of is that they would not call the Caesar Lord and Savior. They would call Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Savior. And in the midst of that, one of the things that Tertullian wrote is this apology or this apologetic, this, this defense, although it, don't, don't let that term or that title uh, misdirect you because his defense was anything but a de- defensive. It was very much offensive, much like Stephen's defense of himself. He kind of took the mirror and held it up to the empire of Rome in this open letter that he wrote to them. And this is one of the lines that came out of that. Can we throw it up here? It's one you've probably heard. One of the lines that he said is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And here's what he meant by that. As men and women die for their faith, their willingness to die is itself perhaps the most lo- the loudest defense we could possibly give for our trust in God. And there are people who are watching Christians die for their faith who are forced to then go, why on earth would they die for that? And ultimately it will lead some of them to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so although we don't celebrate the death of the martyrs. Their martyrdom is perhaps the, most, the loudest defense. It is the loudest declaration that I trust God more than I fear death. And so the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's a beautiful defense if you have the opportunity to read. If you're interested in getting that, I will send you the link so you can read it in its entirety. It is a beautiful defense of our faith that quite honestly feels in some ways that it could have been written by somebody last month. But here's the point. Here's what he's driving at. We, if we absolutely believe in Jesus and choose to follow him, we will encounter persecution. It's not a matter of if. Because persecution is a part of living in a sin-scarred world where there are power brokers that have established themselves. And any time you try to push against a power broker, as Stephen was doing with the Sanhedrin, and as we do when we declare Jesus our Lord and Savior, any time you push against a power broker, they don't like to give up the ground that they consider, they don't like to give up the power that they consider to be rightfully theirs. But not only that, 
More importantly, we have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, who considers this world to be his rightful possession. We live in enemy-occupied territories. All of, there many, many passages in Scripture point to this fact. Romans 12, or I'm sorry, Revelation 12 is a powerful one that reminds us that we live in enemy-occupied territory. And any time we try to push against what the enemy considers to be his, he will push back. There are spiritual strongholds we run against. And you better believe that the enemy is going to push back hard. In fact, Jesus himself said, do not be surprised if you experience persecution. They persecuted me? Well, they're going to persecute you as well. And so we recognize that in this world we're going to have trouble. And yet, I would suggest to you that persecution actually has an unintended benefit to the church and to the gospel. It actually, persecution actually helps the church to grow. At least that's what we are seeing. Not because when martyr's blood is spilled on the ground, it somehow waters the seeds of the gospel to grow. That's not what it's saying. People don't have to die in, for, in order for the gospel to advance, although there are people dying all around the world. In fact, one, uh, one sociologist did a lot of research and he basically realized that in the last century, the last hundred years, there are more people that died for their Christian faith than all 19 centuries before it combined. We are not living in a day and an age where it is safe necessarily to be a Christ follower everywhere on the earth. That's not to say we experience a tremendous amount of persecution here. Let's be honest. The most persecution we're going to endure is that somebody might unfriend us on social media. Or we might get passed up for that promotion. Or maybe if it comes out in your interview, you might get passed up for that job. But that's the extent of it. We are not afraid for our lives on a daily basis. But there is a benefit to persecution, and here's what it is. Persecution forces us into a different posture than we would normally take when it comes to interacting with other people. You see, as we talked about earlier, our typical posture when it comes to doing church is to sit back with people to congregate like we're doing right now, to congregate with people who think like us, speak like us, speak our language, worship like us, you know, maybe even, uh, you know, what, whatever. We congregate with people who are a lot like us. You want to go where everybody knows your name, right? Here we are. And if you don't, we got name tags just so we can remember <laughs> everybody's name. And then we build beautiful buildings and we wait for people to wander in. We wait for the lost to stumble in on a Sunday. That becomes how the church has approached advancing the gospel and building the kingdom for the last couple of hundred years. Sociologists and historians refer to this as the attractional model. And let's be honest, this is how the church defaults when you're not experiencing persecution. Build some buildings, make them as beautiful as possible, so that people will want to come and check it out. Maybe keep the doors open so they hear you worshiping. And, and then if, if we send people out to go be fishers of men, kind of the, the tacit understanding is my goal out here is not 
to disciple somebody, my goal is to bring people back so the pastor can disciple them. And the pastor can tell them why Jesus is worth following. So my only goal is to get him in the door. And then it's Jeff or Eric's job to kind of take him the rest of the way. Well, when persecution, and I got to say, guys, the attractional model doesn't work. Particularly, maybe it has worked in, in past centuries in America and elsewhere. But when society has become as naturally uh, doubtful and resistant to being reasoned into the kingdom, when people are afraid, any time that you suggest that you have a, a perspective that conflicts with their perspective and that you are right and they are wrong, their automatic reaction is to reject that and push it away and say, you're a bigot. And guys, as we're looking at kind of the numbers of the church in America, we are seeing that the attractional model is not working. Less and less people are choosing on their own volition to go to church because quite honestly, they don't see how Jesus is relevant to their life. And there's so many other alternative gods that they can worship on a Sunday morning like football or sleep or sidecar donuts. But the church isn't slowly drifting into obscurity everywhere. In fact, there are places around the world where it is exploding. And ironically, it tends to be growing exponentially in those places where people are being persecuted for their faith, namely places like China and Iran. And the reason I would suggest that they are exploding and growing there is not because people are dying for their faith, although they are dying on a daily basis. The reason it's exploding there is because you can't sit back and just wait for the lost to find you. You can't just build buildings and wait for the lost to stumble in on a Sunday morning expecting it to be full of people. You have to change up the way you approach people. Rather than thinking bigger, as in bigger gatherings, they start to think smaller, as in one-on-one -on -one relationships. And that is what's happening because in places like the church in Iran, which is as of right now the fastest growing church in the world, they don't have any buildings. They don't have any structure like denominations. They don't have hierarchies of people who are leading the church there. All they have are men and women who are devoted to Jesus Christ, who have tasted and seen that he is good, who are coming alongside their neighbor or a coworker or a friend at school. And as they begin to hear that person's story and they see that person struggling, perhaps that person is addicted to drugs or perhaps that person is experiencing abuse at home or perhaps that person is just basically depressed. Depression is not something the American people have a monopoly on, by the way. But as they begin to hear the stories of their neighbors, their friends, their coworkers, they then come alongside and they begin to share the parts of their story that correspond. And what's happening is the church is exploding in those places. So I, I was watching a, a documentary called Sheep Amongst Wolves Part 2. It's on YouTube and it's free to watch. And it's about the growth in the church in Iran. I have a couple of clips I want us to see this morning from it. The first one simply has to do with the way that we have put building the church 
ahead of making disciples and the way that that just throws everything off and how the reason why Iran is seeing such a huge explosion is their focus is elsewhere. Let's go ahead and watch this for a moment. When we talk about church planting in the West, well, generally what we're talking about is a pastor or a teacher starting a community that's built around the pastor and the teacher who listen to him give speeches for half an hour or to an hour once a week. And this is foreign to the Iranians. This is foreign to the Afghan church because the, the expression of church planting in the Muslim world today is not planting churches, it's making disciples. Jesus didn't command us to plant churches. He commanded us to make disciples. You can try to plant a church and you might make disciples. But if you make disciples, you will plant churches. Think about that for a moment. You can, you can plant churches and you might make disciples. We might at some point realize, oh, wait a minute, I have a part to play in this. But if you begin by making disciples, fully, and by disciple I simply mean a fully committed follower of Jesus, if you start by teaching somebody to obey what he's already taught us, teaching somebody to learn how to communicate with him through prayer. If you start there, then churches will be birthed. And when you hear the word church, we automatically think of this building. But that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what they're talking about in the church in Iran because they don't have the ability to have buildings devoted to the worship of God. They would be destroyed for it. When we talk churches, we're talking about a people who were devoted to following Jesus. And the church becomes when, when a couple of believers come together and say, let's walk together. Now that is happening here. And as they begin to walk together, they begin to say, God, here I am. Help yourself to my life. Help yourself to my story. As imperfect and messy as that might be. And give me the eyes to see the hurting person around me that you want me to share my story with. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, that's easy for you to say, Eric, because you're a pastor. You went to seminary. You know all of the verses in the Romans Road, and you have the ability to argue someone into the kingdom, but I didn't have that luxury, and I don't feel equipped. Fair point. But remember what we talked about last week? About how we live in a society that right now that is overtly opposed to being reasoned into the kingdom. They disregard the reason of let's build a case for Christ. They disregard passages because at the end of the day, they don't look at this book, this Bible, as normative for their life. They don't look at this as the word of God. They have bought into the belief that the society has told them that this isn't the good book, this is a bad book that is responsible for so many of the painful things that people have experienced. And so they just reject it. But while people might reject our carefully thought out arguments for the kingdom, while people might not want to listen to those verses and give any credibility to them, what they cannot argue with is your story the ways that you have tasted and seen that God is good. And before you say, well, I'm not equipped, I'm not trained, 
And by the way, please don't hear me saying that this isn't important, that memorizing scripture is not important, and that having the ability to articulate the reasons why you believe is not important. I am not saying that. I'm simply saying where the conversation begins is first and foremost hearing their story so you know who you're talking to, and secondarily sharing your story of how following Jesus has shaped your worldview and has transformed you. It starts there. And before you write yourself off as somebody who is not equipped to do that, remember this. The men and women who are leading the charge in places like China and Iran would be considered spiritual infants here. Many of them are just weeks into their faith before they begin to share. And that might seem ridiculous to you. Because what is our posture here in the church? Oh, I accept Jesus. Now I've got to spend several years sitting, listening to the pastor, gleaning as much as I can before I'm willing to go. And that is, that is how we in the West have put building the church ahead of making disciples. Let's look at one more clip from this, this uh, documentary. The simple thing that strikes me as a difference between the church in Iran the church in the West, the church where I serve, is that we seem to believe that people can sit uh, in a seat in a congregation for a really, really long time, and maybe at some point in their life, they'll begin to follow the Lord in a striking and a significant enough way that they might actually be and make disciples. It could happen. It's possible. And when I compare that to the church in Iran, it seems as though in Iran, a person comes to know the Lord and immediately they're activated into being and becoming and making disciples. It's a striking difference. If you want to know one of the key ways I think that we need to flip the script and learn from the church in Iran, it's the timing or the time between coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and actually becoming a disciple maker. خدا میپرسم که کدوم قسمت شهادت we're sitting in the room with all the leaders and I was sitting in the back and uh, just looking at everyone and one of the leaders leaned over to me and he said you know the thing that's so amazing about all the people in this room is that just several years ago despite all that they're doing now everyone in this room was either a radical Muslim they were addicted to drugs suicidal or even uh, in prostitution and when he said that, I just choked up. I mean, just the thought of it just gripped me. But then I actually heard their personal stories. I heard their testimonies, and it absolutely broke me. 
I love these people so much. Hearing how unique and personal every one of their stories are is, is mind-blowing. There's these common denominators across the board with all of them, you know, dreams, visions, miracles, healing, signs and wonders. There's these common denominators. But the thing that's unique is that in every single one of their lives is this story of personal intervention where the Lord interrupted their lives in a personal way that is deeply connected to their own trauma, their own rape, their own addictions, their own uh, internal struggles, their own family trauma. It's, it's, some of the stuff is, is brutal and horrific, but this is where Jesus displays his glory, I think, in the most beautiful ways is amidst human brokenness. And the thing that blows me away is every single story is so personal, so unique, so standalone. And I think this testifies to the glory of God that he is he's deeply personal and he's after each human being and he's after each individual heart. And this, to me, is one of the most powerful elements of this whole story of the Iranian awakening. I love the reminder um, that God uses imperfect people, that the kind of people he's using to advance his kingdom, the kind of people he's using to build his church and make disciples in places like Iran and China are not theologians. They're not uh, trained seminarian pastors. It's ordinary men and women who have tasted and seen out of brokenness, out of addiction, out of uh, emotional abandonment, out of moments where there's, there's one story in this where a woman literally was trying to commit suicide and, and, and Christ gathered her up in that and, and saved her out of that and she has become a leader, a disciple maker who God is using powerfully to advance. You know, just, just some of, and, and we don't have to, some of us don't have that kind of a crazy testimony. There are moments where I kind of lament that I don't have that kind of a crazy testimony, and then other moments where I'm so grateful I don't have that kind of a testimony, right? But God uses imperfect vessels to pour out his perfect love. And the reminder this morning is that he is inviting you, not simply to be a person who sits in the seat and plays at church and waits for God to kind of bring people to sit next to you. And that's the extent of what going and making disciples looks like in your life. What I hope you hear is that God has uniquely and sovereignly planted you in spheres of influence. This is something you're going to be hearing about a lot in the next couple of months and in the next couple of years. God has sovereignly planted you into social spheres of influence where you live, where you work, where you go to school, where you hang out when you're not in one of those places. And he invites you to be a disciple maker. And the beauty of, of the gospel is that although Christ died once, the gospel impacts each of us in a very unique and very personal way. That's one of the things I heard him saying just now is that God, the story of the Iranian awakening, is that they are experiencing a God who loves them in very personal ways that speaks directly into their context. And I know you have tasted and seen that he's good. And not only does he invite you into his family, but he says, now I'm going to use you to invite other orphans, other wanderers to come home. And I'm going to welcome them to the same table 
that I'm welcoming you because at the end of the day, we are all standing on the foundation of grace. None of us have earned this. None of us has done it right. None of us are perfect. And if you think I'm standing up here because I've somehow figured it out and I've got it together, let me remind you that the reason I'm standing here is I am the first to admit that I am a sinner desperately in need of a Savior, not just once, but throughout my lifetime. I am a work in progress. If you want to use the idea of a potter with clay, I am still half-baked. And yet God is using me even now. And you are a work in progress. Even Merv, even, you know, even, you know, each and every one of you, it doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus, you are a work in progress that God wants to use here and now to connect with others. And I can't think of a way, a better way to celebrate what God is doing in us and through us than communion. Because communion is a tangible reminder for each of us that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That God has taken a people that, are, that, that have a, a propensity to wander, taken a people who have a tendency to congregate in safe places. Come on up, Bill. You can come up. Congregate in safe places with people that think just like us. And he said, no, 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 no. You're my son, you're my daughter, and you're my ambassador of hope. So I'm going to send you back out to invite others in the highways and byways to share in this feast as a family. Kind of like what we're going to be doing on Thursday. We have a lot to be thankful for. And this is one of those ways that we remind ourselves of the audacity of the gospel. That imperfect people become his ambassadors of hope so that other imperfect people recognize how loved they are. And so I'm going to invite uh, Patty and, and Randy, why don't you guys come up here? Kat, why don't you come up here with me? Uh, we've got Jen and, and Jeff in the back.